This gospel message is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Hour, a ministry of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, a Reformed denomination that strives to be faithful to the Word of God and the historic confessions of the Reformed faith, also known as Calvinism. In love for our great God, we proclaim the Christian faith and life that is founded on God's sovereign particular grace. As God's Word is expounded, we pray that these messages are a blessing to you. Dear radio friends, in the last couple of weeks we've begun an in-depth study into the life of Joseph as that's recorded in the closing chapters of the book of Genesis. So far we've looked at Genesis chapter 37 where Joseph and his dysfunctional family are introduced to us. There is the doting father Jacob, the dreaming boy Joseph, and the hate-filled brothers. The hatred of the brothers comes especially in response to Joseph's dreams, which are clearly God-sent, and which foretell a time when Joseph will rule over both his brothers and his parents. The brothers want to kill the dream, and so they make plans to kill the dreamer, Joseph. But under the guiding hand of God's providence, Joseph's life is spared and he instead is sold into slavery and transported to Egypt. That's in chapter 37. And we pick up the story of Joseph today in Egypt from Genesis chapter 39. You'll notice that there's a chapter missing here, chapter 38. What happens in chapter 38? And how is it connected to the story of Joseph? Before we get to Joseph in Egypt, let's answer those questions. In Genesis 38, we have the story of Joseph's prosperous brother, Judah, and his adulterous relationship with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, who is a Canaanite. There are two things in that story that connect it to the story of Joseph. The first is the striking contrast between Judah and Joseph. In prosperity, Judah falls into adultery, In poverty and slavery, Joseph is kept from and resists the same sin. And there's an important biblical principle and warning here. Psalm 62 verse 10 puts it this way, If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. Wealth and prosperity and power, though not evil in themselves, are dangerous and they open up to us added opportunities for temptation. Think of Solomon and how his wealth and power brought him down. And you don't have to look far in our society to see the same thing playing out among the wealthy and the famous. And so there's a warning here, especially for the wealthy and the prosperous. Look out. Be on your guard. Continue in prayer. Ask for wisdom so that your position, power, and prosperity do not become the occasion for a serious fall into sin. That's what happens to Judah in chapter 38. And then in contrast, you have Joseph in chapter 39. Today we're not going to get into this part of the story, but you're familiar with it. Joseph is a young man, a slave, far away from home. His life is extremely difficult, beyond any of our experience. And yet when Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, he is faithful in temptation. And I believe it was through his difficult circumstances that God prepared him for the hour of temptation. His difficult times bring him closer to the Lord, and so he's ready when temptation comes. The second connection to the story of Joseph in chapter 38 is this. The longer 
that Jacob and his family are in Canaan, the more they become like the Canaanites and the more absorbed they are into the nations of Canaan. This is not God's will for the family of Jacob. He intends to prepare them to be a separate people, a holy nation set aside to serve him. And so, Joseph is sent into Egypt as the advanced man to prepare the way for Jacob and his entire family to come peaceably and intact into Egypt, where they will be treated as a distinct people and where they will grow into a great nation. Judah's sin in chapter 38 threatens the distinctiveness of God's people. And so, he will bring them to Egypt. So much for chapter 38. Let's move on to chapter 39, where today we'll consider just the first six verses. Here we find Joseph in Egypt. Verse 1 tells us that the Ishmaelite slave traders brought him down to Egypt and there sold him to an Egyptian named Potiphar. We don't know the details of this transaction, but we can be sure that the Ishmaelites made some money on this deal. As a traveling merchant, you want to buy low and sell high. And the fact that Potiphar was their buyer indicates that they sold him at a high price. Potiphar is a man of great importance and wealth in Egypt. His occupation as captain of the guard meant that he had a high position in the Egyptian military, working very close to the pharaoh. It could be compared to the position of the head of the secret service in our day. As we see later in the chapter, this position took him away from his home for extended periods of time, probably traveling with the king and directing the personal bodyguards of the pharaoh. Also, Potiphar is wealthy. He seems to have a large estate with a number of slaves to take care of his affairs. Now, rather than bore you with more details of where Joseph is, I want you to think about Joseph's situation. And imagine yourself in his shoes. Think of his age, 17 years old. How many parents would let their 17-year-old go off and live away from home? How long would any 17-year-old last before he was homesick, crying to come home? And then think of Joseph's position, kidnapped, the object of human trafficking. He's now a slave put to work on menial tasks, driven, perhaps beaten, and that after being a favored boy who rarely left the side of his doting father and who had a supervisory role in his father's business. And then think of his isolation. After living in a loud and boisterous family, here he is away from it all in a strange place with a strange language. How he must have missed his father and his family. And there was no communication. No letters, no email, no texting, no Facebook. Think of his separation. He had grown up in a believing home where his parents had taught him to love the Lord. And where there was a rich oral tradition and frequent worship and sacrifice. And now he's surrounded in Egypt by their false religion and idolatry. Even his master, Potiphar's name, means gift from the Son, God. And then think of the circumstances that led him here. The hatred of his brothers, the deep pain that must have caused. He had begged for mercy, but they would not hear. And now there's a massive cover-up. Will he ever be remembered? Will he ever be set free? How he must have longed to escape and to go home. 
It makes me think of young men maybe underage going off to war and then being captured by the enemy and put into a prisoner of war camp for years and never hearing from their parents or loved ones, but instead being tortured and beaten. This is Joseph's situation. Maybe you've experienced loneliness or separation or demotion or a beating, but I doubt that many, if any, of our listeners today have experienced what Joseph went through here. But to understand this passage, and indeed this chapter, we need to think of Joseph's situation. Verse 2 tells us that in this situation, the Lord was with Joseph. Those are extremely comforting words for us too. In these very difficult circumstances, the Lord was with Joseph. We noticed in chapter 37, where we were introduced to Joseph, that God is never mentioned directly. It's not that he's absent from chapter 37, but in the experiences of Joseph with his brothers, it seems that God is absent. Now, in faraway Egypt, we see that God is present with Joseph. Eight times in this chapter, God is mentioned. And the name used here is his personal covenant name, Jehovah, or as it's translated in most English Bibles, the Lord. Eight times. And then in contrast, again, God is mentioned by this name only one more time in the remaining 11 chapters of Genesis. That's remarkable. The Lord, Jehovah, the covenant God, was with Joseph. That means first that the covenant God who had made promises to Joseph's father Jacob, to his grandfather Isaac, and to his great-grandfather Abraham, was with Joseph. The covenant promises, the patriarchal promises, the promise of a land, of a nation, of prosperity, of a seed who would be the Savior, the God of these promises, went with Joseph and was with him. And it means this, that Joseph knew these covenant promises, that he believed them, and that he knew God would keep them also for himself. God was fulfilling those promises through the difficult circumstances of Joseph's life. It also means for us that in the most difficult circumstances of our lives, God never abandons us. He never leaves one of his own people to fend for themselves. He never abandons them to the tyranny of circumstances. No, God is always with us. Jesus' parting promise, one of the most beautiful promises in the whole of the Word of God, was this. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Just as God was with Joseph, so his promise is to remain with and be the strength of his people in every age and in every difficulty. Joseph was never alone. No, the Lord was with him. But now, how did Joseph know this? How did he know the presence of God? Back in chapter 28, when his father Jacob is hated by his brother Esau and headed out on his own to Haran, God appears to him at Bethel in a dream. You remember the ladder from heaven with the angels ascending and descending, and God says in Genesis 28, verse 15, Behold... I am with thee, and I will keep thee in all places whither thou goest, and will bring thee again into this land, for I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. Does Joseph have a vision and a promise like this from God? The answer is no. 
all that Joseph has were his two dreams of his own future exaltation and the story of his father's dream at Bethel. And all alone in Egypt, believing that God was with him, Joseph experienced the gracious presence of God. That experience came to Joseph in this way, that God prospered him in the house of Potiphar and that God brought a blessing to the house of Potiphar through him. In verse 2 we read that he was a prosperous man in the house of his master. Verse 3 tells us that his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. That's remarkable. Joseph didn't even have to say anything. Potiphar saw the hand of God in and through all the life of Joseph. Verse 4 continues by saying that Joseph found grace in Potiphar's eyes as he served him. That is, Potiphar liked this man. He could see that Joseph was a diligent and responsible worker. He saw a godliness and a faith in Joseph. Joseph didn't complain about his wages. He didn't try to get all the gravy jobs. He wasn't two-faced with his boss. He simply served him. He had Potiphar's interests and goals as his own. He wasn't laboring for himself. And the result of this was that Potiphar made Joseph the overseer or steward of all that was in his house so that he didn't have to concern himself with anything. He only made one choice now in verse 6, what he would eat. All other decisions were left to Joseph. And for Joseph's sake, God blessed the house of Potiphar in verse 5. It came to pass from the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake and the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Now we should notice that this verse does not say that God blessed Potiphar but rather that he blessed his house for Joseph's sake. God's blessing is not in the material things that came to Potiphar, and God's blessing is not universally distributed to believing and unbelieving homes alike. In fact, Proverbs 3 verse 33 says, The curse of the Lord is in the house of the wicked. Here, for Joseph's sake, that is because Joseph was there in Egypt, And for Joseph's preservation and preparation, God brought his blessing on this home. Joseph was the unique object of God's grace here. God, as it were, singled him out and for his sake made it plain that he was there with him in Potiphar's house. And Joseph was prospered by God in a unique way. When he prospered Jacob while he worked for Laban, it was with wealth. But Joseph is not prospered here with wealth. All the wealth goes to Potiphar. God prospers Joseph with wisdom and great skill in management. When Solomon becomes king, he realizes that he would need wisdom above wealth to govern so great a nation. And that's the gift that God very obviously has given here to Joseph. And God uses this situation in Potiphar's house to prepare him for his position later in life as governor in Egypt. And so God was with him. Yes, Joseph was still a slave. He was still far from home. 
and where he desired to be. But he knew the presence of God and he knew that his present circumstances were a part of the purpose of God for him. And so he faithfully went about his work, not doing it for the praise of men or for personal wealth and gain, but doing it as unto the Lord. There's one feature of this passage that's easy to overlook. This, that Joseph had a secular occupation and that God had specifically called him to this occupation. A word or idea that is largely forgotten in our Christian vocabulary today is the word vocation. It means simply calling. It refers to this, that whatever your occupation is, God has called you to it. Every believer has a vocation. In our day, the idea of vocation has been replaced with the idea of Christian service. Today, instead of teaching a biblical work ethic and godliness in the workplace, churchgoers are being pressured to do something for the Lord. Instead of seeing themselves as already called to serve God where they are, they are thinking that they need to do something spectacular with their lives if they're really going to serve God. Now about that I want to say a few things because it fits right here in the story of Joseph. There are three things to take note of in Joseph's occupation. First, he had a secular occupation. Initially, Joseph was a servant or slave on an estate. Maybe he worked in the fields or in the stables. Later, he had some domestic duties, maybe sweeping floors and making beds. Then soon he was promoted to position of overseer. He was in management and he took care of the affairs of the estate of the wealthy Potiphar. Each of these positions were secular employment. That's true also of his position later in life as ruler in Egypt. Joseph was not a prophet to God's people. He was not a priest in the tabernacle. He was not a king and ruler in God's Israel. In fact, Joseph was far away from having any spiritual influence or recognition with God's people. His was the most secular of all the occupations you'll find in the Bible. Through his work, animals got fed, a house got cleaned, Potiphar got rich, and later Egypt, a godless nation, was prepared for a famine. That was his vocation. This was what God called him to do. But second, I want you to see that Joseph's secular occupation was important to God and it ends up being used by God in ways that Joseph could never have guessed. One of the important themes of the life of Joseph is God's sovereign providence. And what we see is that God uses Joseph's position as a slave to serve his purpose for the salvation of his people. Here is God's man in Egypt, the advanced man sent ahead to prepare the way, and he's working as a slave. Joseph, for the majority of his life, works in the secular arena. But perhaps no one in Genesis or even in the Bible is so used by God for the carrying out of his promises and purpose for Israel and for the preservation of his church. And then third, 
Not only was Joseph's occupation important to God, but God was important to Joseph in this occupation. Joseph is working out of faith, and his faith affects what he does and how he does it in the workplace. Joseph is not working for personal gain. He doesn't view his work as a necessary evil to stay alive. He's not out there to win the evil world for the Lord. No, he's simply exercising his gifts and position to the glory of God. And God is with him. He's living for the Lord in the position in which God has placed him. And what we have here is a superb example of the biblical work ethic. About 80% of our life is spent in the workforce. And these three things about Joseph's work are important for us to remember as we do our work. Any work that we are called to do, so long as it's not immoral or illegal, is a vocation from God. And yet so often in Christian circles, the only vocation we recognize is some sort of call to the ministry. And people who serve in some capacity in the church are elevated so much that if you're not serving in the ministry of the church, you are somehow not serving the Lord. That's absolutely wrong and unbiblical. We have vocations calling from God in our families, in the workplace, and in society. And what's important is not what we do, but rather what God does through us, and that we do our best to His glory. What is a mother doing in the home? Let's not judge her calling by the world's standard, but see what God is doing through her. She's providing for the family. She's having a massive influence in the lives of her children. It's through farmers that God feeds us. Through carpenters, God gives us houses. Through policemen and military, God gives us safety. Through nurses and doctors, God gives us good health. And so on. Just as God was the invisible hand behind Joseph's work, so he works today through every occupation that he calls us to. This should charge our everyday lives and our mundane activities with a spiritual significance. It should give us a diligence and desire to do our best for God's glory. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 3. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord, and not unto men. May God help us, whatever our calling, to live for Him. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for the work that we've been given to do, and we're glad to know that no matter how menial it may seem to us, Thy sovereign hand uses it to serve Thy purposes. Help us, Lord, to be diligent in our work, always living before thy face. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. The gospel message you have just heard was sponsored by the Protestant Reformed Churches through its radio program, The Reformed Witness Hour. We hope that you have been edified and encouraged by this message. If you would like more information about the Reformed faith or the Protestant Reformed churches, 
feel free to visit our website at reformedwitnesshour.org or email us at mail at reformedwitnesshour.org.